Do not adjust that dial on your computer. This is the second annual Scream Tom Halloween edition of the Scream Tom. Get it? Scream Tom with an M and Scream Tom with an N. Me so punny. <laughs> uh, hi, this is Dr. Thomas Parham, chair of the Department of Visual and Media Arts at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And with me, as always, we have... Ryan Clem Barnes, host of the co-host of the Another Take podcast, where we throw out all of our crazy opinions. Like, I'm not afraid to say that my favorite Spider-Man is Ryan Russell Isaac. <laughs> oh, you ruined my surprise! I was going to talk about uh, our internet sen sensation, Ryan Russell Isaac, whose Spider-Man video has gone viral. So it's yeah, being. Uh Brian uh, Isaiah is not available for comment at this time. Uh, I guess I should introduce myself then for those that haven't seen the video. I'm Ryan Isaiah. I'm a screen studies professor and film critic and apparently on the internet now. And a part-time superhero. <laughs> and finally, we have returning special guest, Dr. Alec Wainer, professor emeritus of communication media studies at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And author of Soul of the Dark Knight. Yes. Well, let us talk about um, what the film. I mean, before we launch into talking about uh, scary TV shows, I don't know if y'all have gotten your individual notices from streaming services, but everybody's jacking up their prices. I got a yep. thing from Paramount Plus. I got a thing from Hulu. I got a thing from uh, Disney Plus. Uh, thankfully, I ditched Netflix in time because they're they're jacking up their rates like three bucks for the uh, for the high end UHD plan. Um, part of this is due to the fact that streaming is kind of an inherently not a great business model. And Rise A, I still maintain <laughs> that Netflix cannot just keep passing on their increased prices for programming to the consumer. They got to make a profit sometime. I mean, oh, I don't. I don't disagree with you. I've never disagreed with your uh, assessment of their business model. I just, from a creative standpoint, like the amount of diversity that they're willing to put on their their uh, platform. That is also probably why they're not making money because <laughs> they have so much content and they're trying to reach so many audiences. Uh, but yeah, no business model, not smart. Yeah, it's it's interesting because they added nine million subscribers. Part of that might be due to the crackdown of password sharing, and they're still jacking up all their rates. <laughs> so. Well, I think I read um, this is Alec here uh, in the recent Hollywood Reporter that multi-part uh, story about the state of the industry. Uh, they're about the only ones who are, they're doing better than anyone else right now. Uh, they cleaned up their subscriber uh, password. Uh, issues and they are going to raise prices and they, they seem to be in the best shape of uh, compared to the other studio driven ones I still want to I think have the widest you know markets outside of the United States they've, they've yes. spread their reach which is why we have so much diversity in content as well so I, you know hey we'll see if at some point their how, how do I put this that their reach Meets their grasp. I don't know what I'm trying to say. We'll see if they actually make money. 15, about 15 seconds ago, my reminder on my computer said, "Decide whether to keep Hulu before the prices go up." So it's <laughs> on a lot of people's minds. 
I renewed, I do the Hulu with ads because I'm cheap. And then when I actually tried to change it from without, with ads to without ads, their interface is terrible. And I saw people at the uh, Hulu booth at last year's D23 and told them, how can I change my plan on Hulu and pulled it up? And they're like, oh, uh, not sure exactly. So, you know, but I specifically renewed before last year's price hike. So I got my renewal in for the next year under this year's before this year's price hike. Yay. Well, um, I, I've said this before, Rob Long and the producer that Cheers and other sitcoms and showrunner said years ago uh, that, we're, that these streamers are going to have to do ads. They, they cannot survive without advertising. So more and more streaming is going to look more and more like traditional television. Well, the thing about Hulu, too, is that that's that honestly the best streaming service if you want to watch network TV but don't have cable or access to network television yeah. as they have it the next day. So if you want to keep your, you know, finger on the pulse of culture or whatever and seeing things rather than waiting the four months until Netflix or some other streaming service has the full season available, then it is ideal. And if you're used to watching commercials anyway, and then you go to Hulu and you're watching commercials, like it's not a huge transition. So I don't mind personally. I'll save that extra little bit of money. Yeah. The thing is Hulu NBC pulled out of their out of the deal with Hulu because of Peacock, and then Peacock, uh, Comcast, NBC Universal decided to cut off us freeloaders who have uh, Xfinity cable, which is so awesomely wonderful that I don't want to give them any more money than I have to. <laughs> um, but and plus uh, the CW's deal with Netflix ended a few years back, so. I don't know if there's anything that's worth streaming from the new CW, although they did pick up Lois and Clark and the two All-American shows for another season when the strike, the actor's strike is over. We'll talk about that in the last call. But um, I don't know. It's just... It, it's basically... Like, Go ahead. I feel like um, Netflix and Hulu are probably the two that have the most... Um, back catalog that makes it worth it for people to want to stick around Hulu because you have all the network stuff on there the next day that they have partnerships with, or if you pay for premium, um, you get live channels and Netflix, like Rise said, has the biggest variety of content that they're creating, whether it's all good or not is another thing. But I think <laughs> these two companies are having a little bit more success where some of the other ones are failing because Disney looked at the success of Netflix like five, six years ago and said, well, we want that success. So we're going to take all of our stuff off of Netflix and do our own thing. And then Netflix, Max, Paramount, and Peacock are all basically built on the foundation of we're going to give you everything that you loved from the past. And then we'll spin off of that and create new stuff from that. And it really kind of, as much as these people believe in the power of their brands, it really limits their ability to feel like they can offer you anything other than a very specific thing. Like I think about Disney plus, and I think this is not the thing that immediately appeals to people like Ryan Isaac nope. because Disney is not going after his money the way they're going after people with four kids money. 
And I feel like the problem was they all saw Netflix's success and thought, oh, we can do all of this. And then now they're realizing with how many millions and millions of dollars they've had to sink into making this stuff try to reach cinematic quality and in a lot of cases not quite get there. They're starting to realize, oh, this was sustainable when there were like three people in the game, not when everyone gets in the game and is trying to get the same amount of the same pie. There's not more pie just because there's more streamers. Yeah, and not only that, but you've got the eight major premium streamers and then you still have people like AMC+. Plus. It's like, no, I'm not paying extra to see, oh, I can see that show early versus watching it on linear cable. I don't think so. Uh, I don't know if BET Plus is still a thing, but that just seemed like a I'm sorry, I'm not subscribing. I'm not paying for that. Um, what's interesting now is Hulu and Disney Plus are actually starting to let some shows go on both outlets, which is interesting. So if there's something... I think Loki's also going to be on on Hulu these days. And um, some stuff is on Disney Plus that used to be on Hulu. I don't know, it's weird, because Disney owns... Loki, Loki isn't yet, but go, um, the Goosebumps is on both right now. I think the plan is eventually to put Loki on Hulu as well. I don't know. It's weird. It's just there was so much speculation that Disney was going to sell Hulu. And I just don't think that's going to happen because Hulu is kind of their more adult brand. (laughs) And Disney Plus, although they do have some, you know, do they have is Deadpool on Disney Plus? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I know Logan is under like yes, the Logan tier where is. you can say if it's more mature, like that's where Logan and like the former Netflix Marvel shows are on Disney Plus. But it's it's really kind of this hampered mentality that Disney has about streaming because North America is really the only place where you have this Disney Plus Hulu distinction about where the content goes because everywhere else there isn't Hulu. This There's is true. Star or Disney Plus through star so it's all on one thing and it's like why are you hampering this because you're afraid there are going to be enough people who complain in america that suddenly all this adult content showed up and they can't just let their kids run wild through the streaming service well first off why are you just letting your kid run wild through anything have we learned nothing but that parents expect tv to raise their children for them and get upset when there's something that they don't that they let their kids watch that they shouldn't be watching I mean, yeah, it's wild that once we put ratings on TV shows to kind of prevent this from happening, it, it just made it more possible to have adult content into TV. Yeah. Because you know, then we could just put a disclaimer and, oh, it says TVM or MA, so we have our excuse. But really, that I think that just made the problem worse. Yeah. Well, kind of like ratings creep at the theater with the PG-13 rating, but that's almost a right. whole new... As my as my friend, the late George Yannick, a writer I worked with at Family Channel, by the way, he was an Emmy winner for uh, his work on a Lily Tomlin special. I firmly believe every television should be equipped with an on and an off switch. <laughs> we should call this segment streaming pluses and minuses. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to steal. I'm going to I'm going to steal that for uh, the write up I post on Facebook and Instagram. Because there's, because the survival chances of all these streamers is very low. You simply can't sustain this across this many streamers. So there's going to be consolidation or someone wrote maybe Spectrum will offer a bundle just like cable. 
Yeah, it's cable without wires. <laughs> they just yeah. need to make more of these streaming services go to the max, and then we'll yeah. figure it all out. Yeah. Let's go ahead and switch to our, our, our main discussion topic. Scary TV shows. Um, I put down an, a non-comprehensive list, but I must uh, acknowledge this is the 30th anniversary of The X-Files. Uh, the first episode uh, debuted uh, in 1993, September of 1993. And so uh, that's an example of a show that kind of outlived its welcome both the first time around and that brief, terrible revival version, plus two completely unnecessary theatrical versions. Um, I but, would say that that is like the beginning of binge watching as well, because wasn't that the first TV show to be put an entire season available for purchase um it was it wasn't the first but it was one of the more popular Uh, because i thought it was the first since they couldn't on vhs obviously put a full season that's too much content um oh dude i had the best of box sets from the first oh well i had the best of box sets for the first couple of seasons of the x-files and then when they switched to dvd they put entire seasons um, I did not. I never bought entire seasons of the X Files. What I did do is buy the mythology box sets, which are on permanent loan to uh, to Nicholas Limone. But um, yeah, you know that's boy. Let, let, let's let's go kind of chronologically, and then we can talk more about X Files when we get there. Um, any Twilight Zone fans out there? The I kind of That was my generation. I um, remember at my grandmother's house, I may have been six or seven years old, and an ad for the Twilight Zone came on. It was that was when it was his first run. That's that dates me. And I remember just the ad itself creeped me out. Uh, you know, you could, I couldn't process the tone of what they were doing. Uh, and I didn't so I didn't really watch much when it was first run. Obviously, most of us watch it in reruns. But it's it's sort of creepy in places, and there are a few monsters. But for Serling, it's, it was Night Gallery. That that was the creep show. Ooh, I forgot I forgot about Night Gallery and Alfred Hitchcock presents. Dope. Um, the I heard either I can't I don't know which Ryan it was if it was RCB or Rise. I, I I was saying that yeah I I the original I grew up in the the age of. Um, TV marathons where they'd have a TV show and they just yeah. play it all day long. And so, you know, I would, I would definitely watch that when, whenever I remember being on like vac- vacation, family vacation, like and staying in hotels or whatever and finding out like, Oh, there's a twilight zone marathon. And we'd all gather around after going out for our activities and, and hang out and watch episodes of that. So yeah, I have a great memory of watching twilight zone. I agree. It's, it's, has a creepy edge to it, but not every episode even had what you would consider horror slant to it. Like my favorite one, the the one with the eyeglasses and the the reading guy. Where Burgess no Meredith. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, you know, obviously there's some like uh, the creature on the plane. I'm not doing the titles correctly for Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, written by the thank late you. Richard Mathis. Matheson. Uh, which they destroyed when they rebooted it. Sorry, Jordan Peele, but that was Oh, don't get me started. Don't even get me started. 
<laughs> but yeah, no, I know I I, uh, I have great memory of some of those. And then and then growing up watching the uh, film adaptation, which has a sordid history in terms of the production, but mm-hmm. I still enjoy the nostalgia of that film regardless. Yeah, um, the, oh, go ahead. Uh, Surly was, um, I think he was known for his punitive irony uh, that he'd inflict on characters, you know, judging them pretty harshly in almost an Old Testament sense for their faults. That was that 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 could get, that could get a little heavy-handed, but you know, he wrote most of the episodes and he was burned out when it was done. And but the ones he didn't write, you could tell they they could be very good, but his voice which meant lots of dialogue, um, characterized them. Uh, but uh, they really owe a lot to the creepy and uh, the uh, EC comics of the 50s and that there's this ironic turn on the last page. No! And something would happen. It's there. a cookbook! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's, this, there's this formula that's going on in the 50s and 60s uh, that could be as much psychological horror as actual. More so. The um, the episode um, Rise was referring to is time enough in the world where Burgess Meredith is a bit of a misanthrope and he wants people to leave him alone and there's mm-hmm. like a nuclear war and he ends up in, you know he's like one of the last people alive he ends up alone in the library and he breaks his glasses. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you so, had it coming, buddy. Interestingly, for me given that I'm the youngest one on this podcast, original Twilight Zone is the only one of these scary shows that I've ever actually seen an episode of. And a lot of that started in middle school. We read a short story that ended up being an episode that back in the day got turned into an episode of original Twilight Zone called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Mm -hmm. And... We read the story and then we were shown the episode in class and it was just really interesting to see because it, it really delves into like the, like you were saying, the psychological thriller um, scare aspect of it all. And then right after that, we ended up watching Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and I just rewatched that today and still when Shatner pulls the curtain back in the faces right there, I'm like, no, please don't do that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things where like, I feel like there is some genuine craft to creating this unsettling feeling that in a lot of more modern horror has kind of been lost in jump scares and blood and the gore of it all. And there are people who can pull that off very well from the times I have listened Rise talk to talk about horror because I've never actually seen it myself. But it just feels like that underlying psychological fear is something that is so much more powerful than people get. And it's, it's something that has worked in a lot of other shows that are not really strictly scary shows, but the psychology of them and then reinforced with some of the violence is what scares me. I still think there has never been a scarier thing I've seen in television than season one of daredevil when Kingpin is bashing the guy's head in the car door. Mm. And so much of what works about those shows is that underlying psychological fear of you don't know if they can ever stop Wilson Fisk. And that has its roots in stuff like the Twilight Zone. 
Um, one of my there have been four incarnations of the Twilight Zone. No one will dispute that the first five-year run, uh, which Sterling was directly involved with, was the best. Uh, the '80s revival lasted three seasons. There was a, a one-year revival on UPN, and the the recent Jordan Peele revival, which uh, Rise just mentioned. I think I watched like two and a half episodes, and I hated it so much. It was, it's like, for one thing, dude, you've made one great horror thriller, one, eh, and another one that people are like, huh? But you're not the new Master of Suspense. You know, three movies does not make it the Master of Suspense. So I thought it was kind of, you know, a little bit of hubris for him to host it, you know, executive produce it, but I don't know. But I think one of the reasons why the classic show worked so well and the only one that even came closer, close to kind of succeeding was the 80s revival because we're still in the Cold War and those classic episodes really touch on Cold War fears. And once the Cold War is over, Twilight Zone kind of doesn't work for me. I mean, is that a fair assumption? I never thought about it that way. Um, the, the, the Westerns were also very popular at the time because of their stark morality. Uh, in a Cold War world it's like that. But he would say, certainly would say, that like Roddenberry with Star Trek, it gave him a platform to make social commentary that wasn't overtly political. Uh, and he could get away with things that way. And I guess some of those episodes are like that, but there, it's not that much social commentary, more like morality he was concerned with. Mm-hmm. Paramount Plus definitely agrees with you because the original five-year run of Twilight Zone is the only Twilight Zone available on its platform. <laughs> Probably because they don't want to pay for the others to stream. I mean, which is weird because there were some, um, if I remember correct, didn't Straczynski write for the 80s revival, Alex? Yes. Yeah. I don't remember what he did, but uh, he definitely was involved. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. Yeah, something that I found out that I did not realize when I was putting together this you know, incomprehensive list is the original Outer Limits, which I, I saw a couple episodes as a kid, but I was never impressed. That only lasted a couple of seasons, but the revival yeah. lasted like seven. <laughs> yeah, I, I, once again, I was there when it was available uh, on television in the 60s. And as a kid watching it... Um, it was hair-raising. Some of the episodes about touching another dimension or the man with the extra finger or others were at almost like nightmares. And then I grew up and I went back and watched something. Whoa, oh, I'm not feeling it now. Uh, so part of it's of its time. But it was sort of a film noir science fiction show, I think. Interesting. Now, are any of you familiar with... Uh... Kolchak the Night Stalker, either the series or the two movies that preceded it? Sorry, I didn't watch it. I'm familiar, but yeah, I didn't watch it either. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I was, when when Kolchak, the, when the series came on, I was uh, 10 going on 11. I'm, try, let me, I'm trying to do the math here. So, or I, yeah, I was basically 11 when the, when the series came on. It was only a one-year hit wonder, but the two movies that inspired it are creepy, and both of them were written by Richard Matheson, uh, ah. Twilight Zone vet. Basically, the first movie, the night, and, and this wasn't really intended as a show. It's just they did one movie, 
they, which was successful as, as a telefilm, and then they did a follow-up. And then uh, there was a script written for a third, but they decided to make it a series. But Darren McGavin plays a newspaper reporter, and the first movie is set in Vegas where somebody is robbing blood banks. And then yeah. some people end up dying. And it turns out we've got a vampire on the loose in the early 70s in Vegas. And, of course, everybody thinks Kolchak is crazy and no one will give him the time of day. Um, but uh, it's... I've seen it. I, I have it on DVD. and I've seen it recently. It holds up pretty well. I mean, clothes and costumes are, you know, 70s clothes and, and cars... And then the the follow-up movie, The Night Strangler, one of the things, he's moved from Vegas to Seattle, and that's when I found out that there are parts of Seattle, there's another part of, there's like sub-Seattle below regular Seattle, but Richard Anderson, who would go on to play Oscar Goldman on The Six Million Dollar Man, he is basically this supernatural, you know, entity that is murdering people. Um, Richard Anderson? Richard Anderson. Whom I met. Vanilla? Say what? Mr. Vanilla? Oh, dude. Hey, I met him at a friend's uh, condo in L.A. We screened a couple episodes of Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman. Dude was in his mid-80s, was tanned in tone, and just the nicest guy ever. But yeah, it was... it was. Um, and then the regular show, he moves yet again, this time I believe to L.A., and then they basically do a Creature of the Week. And... Um, the, the one that really creeped me out was the episode about Succubi. And they're like these mannequins in a department store that come alive. This freaked me. We, we used to have slumber parties with some of the uh, some of the boys in my scout troop. And we would watch that. It was like on at 9 on ABC on Friday night. And it was <laughs> creepy. And they did a follow-up vampire. I mean, they just did all kinds of crazy. They did all kinds of crazy things. You know, hellhounds and whatnot. Um, and that was a that and Twilight Zone were direct inspirations for X Files. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Chris Carter yep. said as much. So yeah, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. It might be the, the the new thing is a lot of the stuff that some of the major streaming services have cast off have ended up on the fast, free ad supported television. So uh, um, the Swamp Thing series that uh, DC Universe ran which is actually quite good uh mark verheiden the showrunner is a friend of mine and there's a couple of jump scares in the pilot i showed it to my i showed it to my summer screenwriting class at azusa and they're like this is scary (laughs) but it was very faithful to the alan moore run um the two younger guys either of you watch goosebumps at all no i was uh i'm i'm probably a little too old for goosebumps uh for me it was creep show oh the the tv series version yeah i mean i I watched the movies as well but yeah the tv series i i was i was definitely into oh and i just looked it up uh the night stalker is on peacock cool um that creep show to the movie thanks for the ride lady thanks for the ride (laughs) yeah (laughs) that was a hit on my ship back in the late 80s (laughs) Um, now is there, I guess there's no connection between Creepshow and Tales from the Crypt, correct? 
Oh no, that was what I was. I'm, I'm thinking of Tales from the Crypt. I did watch the Creep Show. Was there a Creep Show TV show? As I don't well? think I'm so. Sure. I don't think so. But there was okay. Tales from the yeah, Crypt. I was thinking of Tales. You were right. I was definitely thinking of Tales from the Crypt because um, I remember the intro going down into the subterranean and he pops out of his coffin. Yeah, I love that. That was. Um... Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't tried to revive that yet because they're reviving everything else they own. Uh, like they did Alex said, at one point, I mean, they did at one point, but it was it was that was decades ago, um, and it it was you know terrible. you know how it goes. It's never as good the second time. Like Alec was saying earlier, a lot of the uh, a lot of the later horror anthologies really took their cues from those those '50s EC comics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, there, uh, NBC had a, a short-lived show in 2000 called The Others. Kind of, basically, by this time, X-Files premieres in 93, and so everybody's trying to rip off X-Files. And there was a Night Stalker revival, which they added a second lead. A uh, Gabrielle Union played a black female lead who teamed with a very much younger version of Carl Kolchak, played by... Um, I want to say Skeet Ulrich, but don't quote me on that. Oh, no, 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 no. You know what? It's uh, Charlize Theron's Stuart Townsend, the uh, the, Aragorn, the, the, the the actor initially cast as Aragorn for Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then after like a couple of days of filming, it's like, man, he plays way too young. We need to recast. Um, did anybody happen to uh, see the others at all? I'm not, I'm not familiar with that one. It was kind of interesting. It only ran, I think... I think NBC only ran like six episodes, even though there were 13. Gabriel Mott, who would end up on Suits as the lead, and which Suits is so the hottest thing on Netflix right now, which is nuts. Right. <laughs> but um, it was basically kind of like a supernatural X-Men where a team of people with special abilities, Julianne Nicholson, who won, um, I think she won Supporting Emmy for... Um, uh, the mayor of Easttown, the series, uh, HBO limited series with Kate Winslet. But of note, the pilot episode, the big bad was the null set, which I thought as kind of a math science person, that's kind of a creepy concept, you know, annihilate, you know, a, a kind of like a, an anti-life entity, uh, similar to what dark sides after in the DC comic books and whatnot. But, um, then uh, another short-lived series short, short afterwards was Miracles. It ran not a full season on ABC, uh, one of those that was so poorly rated that if you bought the DVD set, you got to see ep episodes that never were broadcast. But that was a... That, say what? That's the one with Skeet Ulrich. That's the one right. with Skeet Ulrich, yeah. Getting my... I, getting, I, I my <laughs> getting my dark-haired white dudes mixed up. But uh, Angus McFadden from Braveheart, who played Robert the Bruce, was in it. And then, um, I'm forgetting her name, but she, uh, Latina, who was on General Hospital initially. But again, we've got a team. The one thing that set this apart was they're investigating, uh, their investigators working uh, tangentially with a kind of like former Catholics who are working with uh, investigating supernatural phenomenon. But in the pilot, What's interesting, and it's it's Keith Orich's introduction to the team, but the thing that kind of freaked me out is he's having these nightmares about this creature, this like fang, pale skinned creature, whatever. And then 
uh, there's this little boy who can heal people, which is what he's sent to investigate by the church. And then he he gets hit by uh, a railroad train, nearly dies, and the little kid's a healer, but he makes himself sicker. And while he's uh, while he's healing, he sees the blood forming letters, and it says God is now here. And he had a vision of that on a water tower before. And then when Angus McFadden, who's been kind of stalking him, shows up and says, uh, you know, I, did you experience hematography, you know, blood writing? Is this what you saw? Right, you know, write down what you saw. And he does. And then he says, this is what other people have, have reported. And it says, God is nowhere. And it's like, what? And this thing aired at 10 o'clock and it's like 1047. And Angus McFadden hits his hand on hand on the table, and I I was lying on the sofa, and like my body went up in the air a couple inches. But uh, it's creepy. Have you seen any of it, Rise? Yeah, I, I actually uh, it was my early days of reviewing, and I got sent the DVD box set for that one. So I think I still own it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, anthology approach. And the second episode was kind of cool because it's about a plane that disappears for like 20 minutes. Very Twilight zone And basically, the passengers from the plane... When the plane reappears, the passengers are kind of stuck with what happened. And then the condition reverses itself. It's um, uh, Anne Kuzak, John and Joan's older sister, is in it. And she's basically a paraplegic who can who got in a ski accident and her husband has been her caretaker all these years. But after the plane reappears, she is, she has all her faculties back and then everything starts reversing. So the woman who incinerated in the bathroom that they did an autopsy on, basically her body heals, but she's dead because they cut her apart to do an autopsy. But yeah, it was interesting. Um, and then we get to things like Supernatural, which, you know, anthology with continuing characters and this big, huge arc story and a five-year plan. And then because WBCW is greedy, it goes 15 years. Followed by The Where Walking Dead. Um, before I go, um, were we going to spend any more time on X-Files? Yes. Let's go back to X-Files. Because that's... I would argue that that's kind of what really put people back in the frame of mind for a scary TV. Yeah, can I, I make a few remarks? I didn't watch it at first, and then maybe about the second season, it really caught on Friday nights. And I saw, they, maybe you saw this episode, it was, a, it was a special about the, all the mythology and the monsters. And maybe second or third season, by that time, I went, look at all this submarines and bees and other critters they'll never make this make sense and indeed they never could and they didn't and so it was but it was the beginning of a tendency toward series television to be more serialized to have a running story but they were literally making it up as they went along and yet people respond to that sort of mythologizing so and of course lost did it again and I fell for it that time. Yeah. Uh, but I enjoyed the standalone episodes. Very, very good episodes uh, that stand much better on their own than the myth mythology does. I feel like, and maybe this is just me 
making assumptions, but I feel like maybe it, to a degree, it was this effort to capture what Twin Peaks had captured, mm-hmm. this continuation of a storyline, even while also having this anthology approach. Like, the X-Files really was the best of both worlds, because you would see the standalone stories, but then at least in later seasons, they did try to have this continuation of the, what is it, Smoking Man, Cigarette Man, what are they? CSM and Marita Covarubias and Mr. X. The problem with X, it collapsed under the weight of its own mythology. Because yeah. the, the, the series finale for, you know, for the for the ninth season, the, the ninth classic season, was terrible. <laughs> I mean, and it was called yeah. The Truth. And it yeah, was... but along the way, they did bring more cinematic production values. It felt better. I, the the um the creepy design. I think they substituted like two hundred and fifty watt bulbs for with forty ones just to create that. Every place they went was badly lit, and but it immediately creates a creepy atmosphere so on the cheap. But yet it worked, and it and it created that sort of Star Trek level fandom that was eventually, of course, disappointing. Yeah, and plus the movie. I mean. There have only been a handful of times in history where a television series in production has a film spinoff and then the series continues. And the movie just seemed to make no sense into how the show worked. And they never explained stuff when we got back to the show. And it was just a hot mess. I happen to love the sequel, though. I think it's a, a rare example of smart sci-fi horror um or maybe not that rare but uh i i appreciated how they kind of elevated the contents they just weren't going for just to throw a creature they they had some actually some smart themes in the sequel i don't know maybe the, it's just me but the, i appreciate the it. sequel movie yeah mm-hmm. you know all i remember about that is seeing it and feeling well that was worth the five bucks matinee price i paid <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would argue. Enough, though, right? Let me let me sign off here. But now that we're seeing that UFOs are real, the truth is out there. And <laughs> do we still want to believe? <laughs> okay, gotta go, guys. Enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us, Alec. Um, sure, here's the question: Have any of you uh, Walking Dead has been a monster hit for AMC to the point that we got Walking Dead Miami, AA Fear the Walking Dead. Sorry, Walking Dead LA, at least initially. And then we've gotten, what, two other spinoffs and an anthology series. And I mean, I don't think that was created to be a franchise, but because of the way that the television business is, it is a franchise. And Walking Dead Daryl Dixon had huge numbers and got picked up for season two. And we're getting Walking Dead, the ones who lived. I really, you know, I'm not into zombies. But I liked the first season. I thought those six episodes were tight and terrific. But once season two started and then AMC fired Frank Darabont, who who adapted the show, and then the guy who replaced him eventually gets fired. And for me, every time they fired a head writer, the show would take about half a season to recalibrate. And I ditched it halfway through season four because they botched uh, The Governor's Return. And then the show went on for like six, seven more years. It's like, really? Is this a situation kind of like Game of Thrones where the show got so popular it got ahead of 
the source material or did they oh, just start no. derivating from the source material? They started deviating from the source material early because a lot of the actors that Darabont hired when he was uh Lori Holden played Marita Covarubius, one of the one of the one of the people who supplied information to Mulder and Scully on X Files, and then she played a character the early seasons of Walking Dead. But a lot of the actors that Darabont hired for the pilot were eventually written out. You know, they were their characters were killed off, even though in the comic books they were still alive. So they're they they went off book really early. I don't know. I watched every season of it, and I agree. Fourth season on was a decline. Uh, but I'll watch the spinoffs as well. I think. It, it, I, I I can't explain why it, there's something about it that You're addicted. Drew me in. I got addicted. I got I got invested in the characters more than anything else. I think is what it was um, because I found myself by the third season. You know, it, it, there's impact when they killed off a major character. Oh yeah, and, and they would keep them around for enough seasons to where it was devastating when they finally did, and then. Towards the end, it got a bit ridiculous because they they tried to do too much with the characters. And when you set up a character as like purely evil in early seasons, and then try and find a way to make them a hero, are we talking season, about Negan by chance? Yeah, we're talking about Negan. How um, can how can you bring him back from all the horrible things he has done, and you then know what? not just re, quote unquote redeem him, but give him a spinoff? I, I I agree with you, but I will say that as I watched the last season, they it wasn't an easy process, and I I do respect the the conversations, the scenes, the conflict between characters that he'd wronged, you know, horribly, and to see the efforts towards redemption. Initially, I thought there's no way they can do this. But since they spent, like, they literally spent a season and a half just getting you to accept him as not someone terrible. Uh, and and some of it, I, I, I roll my eyes at. Like, having him be big heroic moments, like, that's contrived. But the smaller dialogue moments about forgiveness, like, I was surprised to see them actually make that attempt given he his moments his introduction of violence is probably one of the most graphic and memorably awful things I've ever seen on television. What's so interesting? The, the, the bashing of, um, Glenn, uh, Glenn. Yeah. The, his, just the gore that they used until watching the TV show gangs of London. I think that was probably the most graphically violent thing I've ever seen on television. So I'm shocked that they decided to try and redeem that character. And in some ways I was a little bit impressed by the boldness of that in terms of filmmaking. And again, not, not for the contrived moments of like, look, he's a hero now, or you can do this, but for those intimate, smaller conversations about forgiveness and how do you redeem yourself from something that seems unforgivable? And they paired him with Maggie on dead city, right? I haven't watched any of Dead City, but that would make sense because that was the relationship that was central to redeeming him. The um, side side note, uh, interesting. Jeffrey Dean Morgan was the lead of a very short-lived UP, UPN show from back uh, 
when I first moved to LA in the mid nineties and uh, a, a friend of mine, Coleman Luck, veteran TV writer, and his son Cole, who I was in a men's group with, wrote for that. And it had uh, kind of x files but it focused kind of on viruses, which is kind of uh, pertinent now. But this was one of Jeffrey Dean Morgan's big breaks. And then there was the network, there was a falling out between, um, basically the network decided to fire pretty much the entire writing staff and also almost all of the cast, including Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And it's interesting how it took him several years before he broke through with his role on Grey's Anatomy and then his role on Supernatural and then finally this role on Walking Dead to really kind of put him on the A-list for TV TV uh, actors. Uh, I think he's really good. Good Wife also? Sorry. Say what? Wasn't he on The Good Wife also? You know, I did not make it to the end of that show, so he could have been. Uh, um, that's interesting. For me, I think the real successor to The Twilight Zone is Black Mirror. Because as The Twilight Zone uh, dealt with our Cold War fears, classic Twilight Zone, Black Mirror focuses on our fear of technology. And, uh, you know, being an anthology, episodes are hit and miss, but when they hit, they're terrific. When they miss, they're eh. Either one of you Black Mirror fans at all? Yeah, I agree. I like Black Mirror, and I'm not a fan of anthologies, like, at all. I do. I, I don't like taking, you know, a half of an episode to get invested to learn the characters and the premise and the plot, and then it, it, I, it, it doesn't do it for me i would pre- much prefer longer time i at least a full season even though the one anthology horror show that does full seasons i don't like either american horror story but that's a testament to how <laughs> good black mirror is because despite the fact that i don't like anthologies i find myself drawn in by how smart their, their writing is yeah ironically i thought one of the weaker episodes was bandersnatch the one with the you know the interactive show with you can you have to play on a video console or I didn't think it was that I thought the writing was kind of weak in that one. I didn't do that one and I get the impression that they were just trying to be innovative in how they presented, you know, that was a new idea. So maybe they weren't as, as convinced uh, that they need to make the story as strong. I don't know. But yeah, I, I, it's it's a trick on a trick because I, I, I myself have not seen any episodes of Black Mirror yet, but I have a lot of friends who have. And it does appeal to the masses in a way because it did it does speak to the times the way that Twilight Zone did in the 50s and 60s, which is why subsequent iterations of it failed, because they're chasing the success of a thing that was pertinent to the zeitgeist at that moment. And you can't force something to be relevant going forward and forward. And Black Mirror was able to figure out, okay, this is how we can approach things and have it be relevant to what's going on today. But even then, with a lot of more modern shows, from what I heard from people, Black Mirror seemed to have the issue of getting caught up in its own success of we have this standard of what everyone expects us to be now. And then they either decide to just throw caution to the wind in the face of that and do what they want, or they are trying to feed into that. And you get subsequent seasons that there are episodes that maybe this doesn't hit as hard. And then you have to like kind of bounce back from that because it's because it always has to come back to what are you trying to say and how is it relevant to what we're talking about? And with a lot of 
stuff that is predicated on entertainment based on fear, you have to feed into the fears of today because fear is something that is cyclical and it changes from time to time. We inevitably come back to the same stuff, but you have to be speaking to what we are afraid of right now. Yep. Well, it's how they're adopted as well, because you can look at vampire narratives at different time periods and you'd be like, okay, this is an addiction narrative, and then it becomes, oh no, this is a contagion narrative, and then uh, you look at like, uh, was it thirty? It's, it's a sexual, it's sexual it's a attraction narrative. narrative. So there's, there's, yeah, there's a, different ways that these can be utilized, but um, we've. It's when you get caught up on the nostalgia of what the thing is that that starts to hinder the creative process of doing the creative thing, like you're saying, of, yes, we still have vampire stories, but we adapt them to what speaks to now. But if you're doing it just because you really, really loved those classic monster movies and you're trying to do that now, you're not going to succeed. You have to make it palatable to what we do now. And having the well, and, and what makes me feel like Black Mirror is actually leaning maybe more towards sci-fi is because we're dealing with advances in technology and that. But then again, there's like the the moral kind of through line to a lot of those episodes as well, which, as Alex was saying, is something that Twilight Zone was known for. So I, I agree with you, Tom, that it is kind of the predecessor of uh, of Twilight Zone. The um. Uh, before we switch move move to our final topic I, I just want to say that have you seen any of American Horror Story Rise A because I watched the first half of Murder House aka season one was not impressed it's like dude quoting great horror movies does not make this a great horror TV show I've yeah no absolutely I've watched uh, more than half of the seasons there. I haven't watched, I think the last two or three seasons and I'm in no, I have no interest in seeing Kim Kardashian act because yeah. I saw her in a Tyler Perry movie and I know what she's capable of had enough. Um, I just don't have any interest, but I will probably eventually some of the episodes are, some seasons are better than others. You know, when I had Lady Gaga is like, Oh, okay. There's a certain amount of, and the same thing they're doing with Kim Kardashian. There's a certain amount of like curiosity, and when you bring someone that you don't expect into the franchise. But another fun thing, I guess, that the fans have with that is that they get to see the regulars playing different roles each season, um, whether it's Kathy Bates or uh, uh, what's Dahmer Kid, um, um, uh, Evan Peters. Evan, Evan Peters. Peters. Yeah, so that that's kind of fun, but I, I agree with you. Even the first season, I'm like, I could have this could have been a movie and a haunted house movie, and it, it would have been fine. But to drag that out into ten or twelve episodes, it just didn't feel like it was necessary. Nope. And I heard that later. Does it have season... a lot of the same flaws as other kinds of Ryan Murphy shows? Don't get me started. I heard that uh, many of the subsequent seasons tended to self destruct. So. It was still better than Screen Queens. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, I, I didn't even bother with that. I didn't even bother with that. Uh, let's um, for last call. Let's talk about the uh, the recently settled Writers Guild strike, and let's put out a call for uh, AMPTP and the studio heads. Hey, make a deal with the actors. If you're only if you're only half a billion dollars apart, dude. There's multiple studios 
Half a billion dollars split amongst all of you, that's chump change. That's probably yeah. less than the catering budget on some of these movies, some of these movies you waste uh, money on. Um, I mean, this is, I've been a Writers Guild member since 94, uh, and this is the best contract we've negotiated. I mean, instead of capitulating, you know, to the AMTP's, AMPTP's pressure camp tactics, including the last writer's strike, we got a really good deal in terms of compensation, in terms of show sizes, in terms of you may not use AI to replace writers, uh, residuals, including foreign, etc. I mean, it's kind of sad that we it, it took almost five months to accomplish this. I just hope they're not going to string the string along the actors similarly. Because they need to get that same deal with the AI for actors as well. Because have you seen the viral clip that is going around from that new movie that's on Disney Plus? It's horrible. What's it's the so movie? Bad. So bad. They're, they're the CGI background actors, and that's oh. like crowds on PS2 games. That, that's the big concern that a lot of people have been having. Because I mean, um, was what it what's the uh, um, uh, what's the big uh, extra background company? background oh what one of them one of the big background uh they sent out uh forms asking for permission to use images from a bunch of actors without giving details for why and people are speculating that they're trying to like get the permission to use people's images to create cgi versions of them so that way they never have to pay for background actors anymore and they have the likeness of these actors that they won't have to pay well that uh, that, that was the proposal that they made to the uh, to sag after it before the strike saying we want to bring in background actors give you a flat fee and then own your likeness in perpetuity and thankfully sag after says get bent <laughs> But I can't believe they're still trying to pursue that. It's like it's insanity. Well, it looks what? like they may have already tried to implement some of this because there are reports coming out that background extras were getting scanned on the set of Gladiator Two before everything shut down, and they Ooh. were saying we didn't think we could say no to this. And it's like so Disney's already trying to implement this before they're legally bound to not do this. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, and that's why people are getting concerned because there's all these permission sheets being handed out, and everyone's like, "Why? Why am I signing away my rights to my own image? This doesn't make sense." But when you don't, you know, when you're just a struggling actor, which many that are doing back work are, background work are, then then you kind of feel like you said that they they feel like they have to. They feel bullied into giving away their rights, which is frightening. Yeah, this is that's... almost a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, right? seriously, seriously. Um, specifically, the one with um, um, oh Hannah Montana. Why can't I think of her real name? Miley Cyrus. Thank you. Which is actually a really interesting, good episode. <laughs> and unlike some people who think they can act, I'm talking about you, Kim Kardashian. Miley's not bad. I mean, you learn something doing all those series as a Disney pop tart. Um, the um, Alex sent me a really interesting article from um, Hollywood Reporter, it basically had five takeaways from this where Hollywood is now. Number one, streaming is a lousy business, which I think that that's what, you know, peak TV is over, so is peak pay. 2022, there were 599 original scripted shows 
and that is the top because basically what happened is the bill came due for all the studios <laughs> for uh, in their stock prices and that's why we've seen them cancel things left and right hbo canceled winning season before they got to the winning season for the lakers <laughs> that's insane which is nuts um uh peak tv uh number two peak tv is tv is over so is peak pay number three even taylor swift can't save theaters her concert film uh opened at slightly under 100 million dollars which people are like i mean how much did you expect it to get (laughs) well i think part of it is because she bypassed the studios there there's things that the studio although i am not like a, a, as opposed to studios getting cut out there are services that they provide that weren't available and also it became like oh now you got to go to amc to see this it's not this widespread we can see it in any theater we want so there there are speculations that while producing it or distributing it rather um through amc and on her own and cutting the studios out maybe that saved her some money but i feel like it could have been a bigger a bigger uh box office beast if they hadn't done it plus it's only playing on the weekends which is confusing to me yeah really interesting um it's it's it's, i think it's dawning on all of these studios that we're never going back to where we were at i think nope the that is correct. Hit and they thought we're going to get out of the pandemic. We're going to get back to where we were. And it's like you look at 2019 and nine of the top 10 grossing movies of the year were over a billion dollars. We're never going back to that with how the pandemic drove everyone to streaming. And then on top of that, people are just not wanting to spend their money on a movie as much anymore. And with the writer's strike being what it is, and inevitably when we get a SAG strike, what that's going to end up being, they're going to want to tighten their belts because they're already having to pay the writers and actors more. They're going to think we have less opportunity to make stuff back, so we got to cut down on what we're doing. But it's it's just like there were all of these cultural things going on in 2019 that allowed that many movies to make that much money. And we're just not at that point anymore because so much of the product they've been pumping out is creatively bankrupt well, and just trying to print money. Not only that, but that people who think that, who thought that we were just going to return to to pre-pandemic, you know, everything. Dude, a disruptor disrupts. And what happens after the disruption is not going to be what was going on before the disruption. It's not like a just a pause. Um Tom Rothman from Sony Motion Picture Group, uh, he's the CEO, had a quote in that article, make films with great cultural urgency and strong playability. And I don't think we're doing that. Um, Is that what Sony was doing when they made Morbius? (laughs) Uh, I hope this quote was, this quote was from a couple days ago, so (laughs) hopefully he's learned something from Morbius. Um... Number four, the AI battle lines are just being drawn, and we've already talked a little bit about that already. What's interesting is uh, reviewing the the overall points of the Writers Guild contract. Studios cannot use AI to replace writers. However, writers are allowed to use AI as a tool. I don't recommend it because the Black Mirror writers actually tried to use AI to write a script, and they said it was terrible. <laughs> And this, this goes to what uh, a little bit about what, what RCB was just saying. The kids are on YouTube and TikTok. 
and I don't know how it is with your film, your film appreciation students, uh, Rise A, but I ask both of my sections every Monday, what did you see this weekend? And I probably have easily 50 plus students between the two sections of class. And usually a handful of them may have seen something and rarely is it a new release. It's usually something that they caught on on uh, streaming or something that they love and wanted to watch again. Because even streaming, like we've shrunk the attention span down to it has to be a 10 minute YouTube video. And even then 10 minutes is way too much now because everyone's being trained on TikTok to see things super, super quick. And you don't, that's why these studios keep panicking and thinking they need to dive back into their IPs because only things that these kids recognize um, from their childhood will get them back in there. And it's like, but you're ignoring the fact that there are new children here. You're not building anything for new kids' childhoods. You're still mining the childhoods of people who are now in their 30s and 40s or older and expecting them to show up and kids to show up to that. And it's like, why would they show up to something they have no attachment to? You are correct, sir. Any other thoughts before we sign off? Uh, shout out to Lovecraft Country for oh, another horror show that we didn't it. mention. I meant to talk about Lovecraft Country. Wow. And the coolest thing about Lovecraft Country is that, and I'm sure you noticed this, Rise, is that for the first, I would say the first eight or so episodes, each episode was an homage to a very specific type of horror sh- you know, the first one is The Creature in the Woods, and then we mm-hmm. get the time travel episode, then we get the body horror episode. And this was one of the, uh, uh, I can't pronounce her name, Wound Me, uh, she's on Loki. Uh, she was in that, and then of course, um, oh, why am I blanking on it? Jonathan Majors was the, the second lead, the male lead of Lovecraft Country. Journey Smollett was the, the lead actor, and... Uh, it was really kind of her story, which was kind of cool. But uh, let me see if I can f- not butcher her name. Uh, Wunmi Musaku, who was great. And then An- Anjanu Ellis, who's always, ter- you know, Academy Award nominee Anjanu Ellis, rather, uh, was terrific. And I, th- I think she just signed to do either another film or a TV show. But I've been a fan of hers ever since uh, Undercover Brother. <laughs> Thank you for pointing out my... My uh, my omission, Rise Eight. Yeah, that was a great great little show. I'm glad they didn't try to do an obligatory second season just because they could. Yeah, that's true. So rare for uh, major streaming services or networks to show restraint. Okay, guys, thanks for uh, scaring up some discussion about TV shows. My pleasure. Yeah, I have no pun. My pleasure, too.